All right, morning, everyone. Father, we thank you so much for your word and the wonderful work that it does in our lives and the great revelation it gives us of yourself. I thank you for the revelation this morning of the next life. Discuss Hades, Lord. I pray that you would uh, answer some of the questions that we have, that we we are not given um, significant insights into the next life in, in light of the size of the Bible, the amount that's given to Hades and heaven and hell seems to be uh, somewhat limited, so I do thank you for what you have revealed to us. I pray that I could explain it well this morning. I, I pray for your people that you would give us understanding hearts and anticipation about being with you and the comfort that's experienced when this life ends, even as uh, some people might sit here and listen if they're, if they're sick or they've lost loved ones that, that are believers, that they would be able to be comforted by looking forward to them again. And so I, I thank you for what you've revealed in your word, uh, the encouragement and comfort that it gives us, Lord. Again, help me to uh, teach clearly this morning and rightly divide your word. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, amen. All right, the title this morning's sermon is Hades in the Bible is. So as you can tell from the title, we're going to be talking about Hades. Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel, verse by verse. Don't turn there. Go ahead and stay in Acts 2. Because we reached Luke 16, 19, which begins the account of the rich man and Lazarus. As you might know, that account introduces us to Hades. And so as I was flushing out my, flushing out my notes for that account, I saw that Hades needed some explanation. And I developed the material to explain what Hades is. So you'd have the background for that account. And I found that it provided, probably not surprising to you, more than enough material for its own sermon. Uh, in fact, I had to cut a considerable amount out, the material dealing with Gehenna and Tartarus, just to be able to explain Hades well. So I want to begin by asking you to take your minds to the Old Testament and think of those places that discuss heaven and hell. My suspicion is you probably can't think of too many places or too many Verses. Think of places that discuss eternal rewards or eternal punishment. Interestingly, even though we know eternal life or heaven and eternal punishment or eternal damnation or hell are incredibly significant topics, the revelation regarding them is fairly veiled or shadowy in the Old Testament. Unless I'm missing something, this is the only verse in all of the Old Testament discussing eternal life and eternal punishment. Daniel 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting uh, contempt. There's one verse that seems to discuss eternal punishment. Isaiah 66, 24. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. Do you recognize that verse? You probably do because Jesus quotes it in the Gospels to describe hell. So that's how we would know that this verse probably has hell in view. There's a few verses that subtly describe heaven. Psalm 1611, in your presence there's fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. So here heaven's loosely described as the joy of being in God's presence. Psalm 23, 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So here heaven is described as being with God forever. Psalm 73, 24, you guide me with your counsel 
and afterward you will receive me to glory. So here, heaven's described as being brought into glory. And then the last verse, Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. The earth will give birth to the dead. And so this verse is describing resurrection. But all of these verses combined, and any others we could even add to them, don't come close to the clarity that the New Testament provides regarding heaven, heaven and hell. And this is because, as we've talked about before, Revelation is both progressive and cumulative. And what I mean by that is it's progressive in that greater revelation was given over time, and it's cumulative in that uh, further revelation builds on versus contradicting previous revelation. Now, because of the limited revelation in the Old Testament, really the realities, the true and greater realities of heaven and hell themselves didn't fully come into view until the first advent of Christ, until his coming and preaching with such clarity about them in the Gospels. And so you probably know that in the Old Testament, when people died, it didn't talk about them going to heaven and hell. It talked about them going where? What are some of the places or words that come to mind to describe the location for them? Sheol's one. What else? Uh, Hades is the New Testament word. That's what we'll talk about that in just a second. What else? The grave, the pit. And this brings us to lesson one. Hades, Greek, or Sheol, Hebrew, is the temporary abode of the dead. Hades in Greek, or Sheol in Hebrew, is the temporary abode of the dead. The Hebrew word Sheol it's the name of the temporary, uh, temporary abode or location for the souls of the dead until they go to their permanent residence or permanent home in heaven or hell itself. In a recent Sunday school class I taught, for those of you who attended, I briefly discussed the Septuagint. So if you remember Alexander the Great conquered the known world, made everything Greek, Grecian culture is spread everywhere, <clears throat> the common language of the day becomes Greek, and so for people to have a Bible that they can read, the Bible in that day was the, the Hebrew Bible, or what we know as the Old Testament, and it was written in Hebrew, and so it had to be translated into a language people could read, and so the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, and that Greek translation of the Old Testament is known as the Septuagint, and it'll be mentioned in your Bible. Whenever you see LXX, that's the Roman numeral for 70. That's referring to the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible or Hebrew Old Testament. And it's called the LXX or 70 because of the 70 scholars. Now, when the Hebrew word Sheol was translated into Greek, it was called Hades. And so to be clear, Sheol and Hades are the same word, but one is Hebrew and one is Greek. When the Bible discusses Sheol, in the Old Testament, or Hades in the New Testament, it does not distinguish between the righteous and unrighteous dead. It does not distinguish between believers and unbelievers. It does not distinguish between eternal rewards or eternal punishment. In other words, it is simply the location or the abode for the dead, whether they're believers or unbelievers, whether they're righteous dead or whether they are unrighteous dead. <laughs> Let me give you some examples. Here's just four verses. I could give you more about righteous people going to, to Hades or going to Sheol. Genesis 27, 35, J uh, Jacob said, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. 
Job said, oh, Job 14, 13, Job said, oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath has passed. The psalmist in Psalm 88, 3, he says, my life draws near to Sheol. Isaiah 38, 10, Isaiah said, I'm consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. Here's four verses about the unrighteous dead or unbelievers going to Sheol, and there's plenty of other verses I could give you. Number 1630 with Korah, if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Psalm 917, the wicked shall return to Sheol. All the nations that forget God. So then we have wicked or the description of wicked people going to Sheol. Psalm 31, 17, let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Last verse, Isaiah 5, 14, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and the multitude of revelers or wicked will go there. And so the Old Testament has uh, quite a few verses describing the righteous and the unrighteous going to Sheol or going to Hades. Now, let me share something that's related but might not seem that way at first. And just by a show of hands, have you ever wondered where Jesus was between his death and resurrection for those three days and three nights? Have you ever wondered that? Okay, it's a common question that I've received as a pastor. One of the reasons that I wanted to, to elaborate a little more on this was I hoped that it would answer uh, some of these questions that, I, that, that seem to be more common. Some of the same questions that, that I've not only received but had at times in my Christian life. So where was Jesus for those three days and three nights between his death, death and resurrection? Well, first, I'll tell you where he wasn't. He was not in heaven. Jesus did not die on the cross and then go to heaven. He did not go to heaven until when? His what? His ascension, that's right. Jesus, he's raised from the dead. Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. Jesus was there. She did not recognize him. She thought that he was who? The gardener. Jesus says her name, or excuse me, Jesus, yeah, Jesus says her name, and then she recognizes him, and she gets ready to embrace him, and what did Jesus say? Does anyone remember? John 20, verse 17, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. So we have Jesus himself telling us that he did not ascend until he ascended, <laughs> or he did not ascend to heaven until the ascension. Okay, so if he was not in heaven, then where was he? Jonah helps answer this for us because when Jesus condemned a wicked generation for asking for a sign, he said that no sign would be given except the sign of Jonah. And in Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus was in the same location that others were when they died, and that is Hades. Listen to this. Hebrews 2.17. In all things, Jesus had to be made like his brethren. And this refers to the ways that when God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, he experienced the same things that we experience. And so what are those things in Jesus' earthly life he experienced that we experience? You can go ahead and say things aloud. Uh, hunger, what else? F temptation, fatigue, thirst, betrayal, hurt, trials, suffering, death. And we tend to think that Christ's identification with us concluded with his death, but it didn't. 
In fact, to be a Christian is to believe that Jesus died and was buried for you. He even had to identify with us in death. And he even identified with us in death in that he went to the same place that people went when they died. And that's Hades. Now, hopefully you're still in Acts 2. The context is the Holy Spirit falls on the people at Pentecost. They begin speaking in tongues. Observers thought that everyone was drunk. Peter sees this opportunity to tell them that what they're actually seeing is the evidence of Christ's resurrection. Peter tells them that Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1, and then when Christ ascended in Acts chapter 1 and reached the right hand of the Father, he sent out the Holy Spirit who descended on these people. So you've got Christ's ascension in Acts 1, the Holy Spirit's descension in Acts 2, and when the Holy Spirit descends, he causes these people to begin speaking in tongues. And so the fact that these people are speaking in tongues is evidence of Christ's resurrection because the only way that the Holy Spirit would be sent would be if Christ had reached the right hand of the Father. Now look in verse 24, Acts 2, 24. God raised him, referring to Jesus, up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. We've talked about this before. The wages of sin is death, but theoretically, if you had someone who died who didn't sin, then death could not hold that person. And that's what Peter's saying, that death could not hold Christ because he was sinless. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, and now pause right here, this is important. Peter is going to quote David in Psalm 16, but you need to know that David isn't just talking about Jesus, David is talking as though he is Jesus. Jesus is speaking through David about Jesus's future time in the grave. And so when we read these words, read them as though Jesus himself is saying them while he was dead. So verse 25 goes on. Jesus says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Now remember, Hades is the New Testament translation of the Hebrew word Sheol. This is a quote of Psalm 16. So if you went to read Psalm 16, you could almost be confused because Psalm 16 doesn't say Hades, it says Sheol, right? In most translations. And you say, well, is it Hades or is it Sheol? Yes, because they're the same. Notice Jesus is dead, but he's not in heaven. He's in, if he was in heaven, he wouldn't be crying out to his father, right? He would be in heaven with his father. So you say, well, maybe it just says Hades because it's an Old Testament quote. But go ahead and look at verse 31. Peter's speaking, and he says, he, this is David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he, the Christ, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So while Peter wants to defend Christ's resurrection, Peter himself says that Jesus was in Hades. So here's the timeline. Jesus is crucified, 
resurrected three days later. 40 days later, he ascends to heaven. But what did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? And this is what confuses people. What did he say to the thief on the cross? Today you'll be with me in paradise. And people kind of scratch their heads because we know that Jesus didn't go straight to heaven. The answer is that paradise is referring to this place of comfort in Hades. It's also called Abraham's bosom. And so when Jesus died, he took the thief with him to this compartment in Hades where all of the other believing dead were or righteous dead were until this point. So Hades has these two compartments. And most of you probably already know this from the account that we'll be looking at next week in Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. There's a place of comfort, which is also called paradise or called Abraham's bosom. And then there's a place of torment. And this brings us to lesson two. Believers were removed from Hades at Jesus' ascension. Believers were removed from Hades, specifically the compartment of comfort or place of comfort at Jesus' ascension. And then you can turn to Ephesians 4. Okay, Ephesians 4. Look at verse 8. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Ephesians 4, verse 8. Therefore it says, when he, this is Jesus, when Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now let's deal with the end of the verse first, and in particular, the discussion of Jesus giving gifts to men. We just briefly talked about this a moment ago. It's referring to Jesus's ascension in Acts 1. He ascended, and what did Jesus do when he reached the right hand of the Father that we just talked about? He sent out the Holy Spirit, who gave gifts to men. We call the gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And because Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, who gave the gifts, Jesus is credited with being the one who gave the gifts, even though we call them the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit being the bestower of them. It also says that he led a host of captives with him when he ascended. So in other words, when Jesus ascended to heaven, he took people with him. Who would these people or these captives be that this verse is talking about? It's talking about those people who are in Hades the believing dead, and they're called captives because they were captive there until Christ died, or they were captive there and that they could not go to heaven until Christ released them or emptied this compartment of comfort in Hades and brought, and and doesn't that just make sense to you? I mean, could you have people going to heaven before Christ himself ascends there? They couldn't go to heaven before this. They're captive in that place of comfort. And then look at verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? One more time. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? So before Jesus ascended into heaven, he had first descended, not talking about the incarnation or not talking about him coming from heaven to earth because it talks about him descending into the lower regions of the earth, which I take to mean Hades. Now, here's the question. 
why couldn't Old Testament believers go to heaven? Why did they have to remain captive in Hades until this point? Because Christ hadn't died yet. What is the obstacle between us and God? It is sin. And until that obstacle was removed, people could not be reconciled to God. There could not be entrance to heaven prior to Christ's death on the cross. People's sins had only been covered by all these animal sacrifices. If people could go to heaven prior to Christ's sacrifice, it would almost beg the question, well, why would Christ have to be sacrificed? Hebrews 10, 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The veil in the temple, which had incredible symbolism, this veil is the representation of separation between God and man. Who, who went past that veil in the Old Testament? The high priest once per year or people that had a death wish, right? Because <laughs> the idea is you go past that veil, you die. And that veil pictures or represents the separation between God and man. And it's not until that veil is torn that there is access into the presence of God. And there's two verses in Hebrews that make this clear. Hebrews 6, 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So it's talking about what Christ did and how Christ allows us to enter past this veil into the presence of God. Hebrews 10, 20. By the new and living way that Christ opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. Identifying the veil as a type of Christ's flesh or body, that when Christ's body is torn on the cross, that just like that veil was torn and then gave us access to God, we can enter into his presence, but not before that. And so these captives were waiting in the place of comfort until Christ ransomed them from there. I said before, if I had to use one word to describe the Old Testament, it would be the word separation. If I had to use one word to describe the New Testament, it would be the word reconciliation. And the Old Testament really screamed separation. Probably the two clearest manifestations of God's presence in the Old Testament would be Sinai, and the ark. And even when we talk about the veil, what was on the other side of the veil was the ark. So we've already been talking about that. The two greatest manifestations of God's presence in the Old Testament, let's deal with the first one, Sinai. And when God redeems his people from Egypt, brings them to the base of Sinai, does he say, come closer or keep your distance? It's kind of strange, or it's not what you would expect because he's gone to all these lengths, unleashing all of these plagues, parting the Red Sea to get them through the wilderness to the base of Sinai. And then he says, don't come closer, you're going to die. What about the ark? Could people touch the ark? The Philistines learned the hard way not to open the ark when thousands died. And then Uzzah learned the hard way that even if you're well-meaning and you want to stop the ark from tipping over, if you reach out to touch it, you're going to die. Why is that? Because of the separation, because of God's holiness, because we don't have Christ's righteousness until Christ dies and imputes it to us by faith. So it's hard for me to believe that people could go to heaven before Christ died and remove their sins. And listen to what Jesus said, supporting this. John 3, 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So we have Christ himself telling us that nobody ascended to heaven until he did. Now, while I've been talking about this, what two individuals have been coming to mind, probably posing some nagging question for you? Huh? Enoch and 
Elijah, so let's deal with that. I'll read the verses about them and then explain how they can still harmonize with all this. <clears throat> Genesis 5:24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. We're told that God took Enoch, but we are not told that God took him to heaven. 2 Kings 2.11, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated Elijah and Elisha, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. I don't think this is the heaven where God dwells. And you probably know that Scripture uses the word heaven three ways, right? Who, who in the New Testament famously talked about going up to the third heaven? Paul did, right? I think that was a vision that he had versus an actual trip because he talks about it in the third person and says, I don't know if it was a bodily experience or an out-of-body experience. I think it was an out-of-body experience, or in other words, I think it was a a vision he had simply because Jesus said that nobody else ascends to heaven. So Paul discusses the third heaven. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. So what are these three heavens? The first heaven is the earth's atmosphere, or let's just say the blue sky. And we see this heaven mentioned frequently throughout Scripture. For example, Genesis 8-2, the rain from the heavens was restrained. Well, we know when we're talking about rain coming from heaven, many verses throughout Scripture, we're not talking about rain coming from God's throne, but the skies, but the clouds and the blue sky. The second heaven would be outer space with the stars. Genesis 15-5, God brings Abraham outside, and he says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're unable to find them, if you're unable, if you are able to number them. Excuse me, so that would be the second heaven, the stars or outer space. The third heaven is where God dwells, or what we think of as heaven itself. And this verse says a whirlwind took Elijah into heaven, and I believe it means up into the sky. He transported him, like Philip in 8:39, chapter 8, verse 39 to 40, after baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, if you have trouble with that and you say, well, I'm not really sure, I think that actually Elijah did ascend to heaven, or Enoch did ascend to heaven where God dwells, I cannot figure out how that could be harmonized or reconciled with Jesus' own words in John 3.13 when he says, nobody has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so one of the real issues with theology or doctrine can be letting go of some of those things that we've heard many times. Just because something is repeated or preached many times, perhaps because it sounds good or people want to believe that, doesn't necessarily make it true. Scripture has to agree with it. It has to be harmonized with other places. And so we're always going to take that interpretation that harmonizes with the rest of Scripture. And so if Jesus says, nobody ascended to heaven before him, then there's got to be some other way that we can interpret what took place with Enoch and Elijah. Now, we've talked about believers being removed from the compartment of comfort, one of the two compartments in Hades, and what about the unbelievers being removed from the other compartment, the place of torment? And this brings us to lesson three. Unbelievers will be removed from Hades at the great white throne judgment. And then you can turn to Revelation 20. Unbelievers will be removed from Hades at the great white throne judgment. And then turn to Revelation 20. (laughs) 
So while you turn there, one of the things I used to have to teach my students is the connotation that certain words have, being positive or negative. I think I mentioned one in Sunday school recently. The word juvenile generally has a negative connotation because immediately we think juvenile delinquent, right? Well, resurrection has a positive connotation for us because we always think about resurrection in positive terms, resurrection unto eternal life in heaven with God. But is there another resurrection? There is a resurrection for unbelievers as well. There is a resurrection unto damnation or unto eternal or everlasting life in hell or everlasting contempt. Listen to this, John 5, 28. Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So there are two resurrections, one to life, one to judgment. Jesus mentioned resurrection for believers and unbelievers. When you're reading the New Testament, and and I don't know if I'm missing, uh, perhaps I'm wrong about this, but I think that every single time that the day of judgment is mentioned, it's mentioning the judgment we're looking at in Revelation 20. Let me say it one more time. Every time in the New Testament when the day of judgment is mentioned, it's mentioning the great white throne judgment or the judgment of unbelievers that we're looking at here. For example, Jesus talked about this day, Matthew 10, 15. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Paul talked about this day, Acts 17, 31. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And that's Jesus, as we'll see in a moment. Peter talked about this day. 2 Peter 2, 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now, hopefully you noticed that this judgment is repeatedly spoken of uh, as a day or singularly to take place on a day versus days and that's because in one moment the place of torment in hades the other compartment will be emptied and all unbelievers who have ever lived will be resurrected to be judged on this day as far as when this judgment takes place john MacArthur said this judgment takes place in the indescribable void between the end of the present universe and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth so at some point when the creation that we know it is burned up and before the new heavens and new or the new earth comes down from heaven this judgment occurs in that void or that space now look at me at verse 11 these are what i consider to be the most terrifying verses in scripture I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Who sits on this throne? Christ does. That's right. God sits on this throne in the person of Jesus Christ. We know this because all judgment has been given to the Son. John 5, 22. The Father judges no one, but he has committed all judgment to the Son. Now, this is interesting what are the two roles that jesus occupies he's going to occupy one of these two roles for every single person who has ever lived he will be your what or your what he's going to be your judge or your what 
your Savior. That's it. Every single person will face Christ as one of those two roles. He will be your judge or he is your Savior. But for people who have rejected him as Savior, they will face him as judge at this judgment when they see him sitting on this throne and they stand before it. Many people think Hebrews 4.12, this is one of the other things that kind of circulates through the church. I don't think it's correct. Think Hebrews 4.12 is referring to the Bible, but it's referring to Jesus. Listen to what it says about him, about Jesus. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God, this Jesus is the word of God, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. It doesn't say from scripture's sight. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So we can tell from the use of those pronouns, his and him, that a person is in view here, and that person is the word of God, or the second person of the triune nature of God, or, or, or Jesus Christ. He's the one we must give account to. He's the one who has nothing hidden from his sight. He's the one who has everything uncovered and laid bare before him. So it's tempting for people to say, and I think I've even heard people say this before, can you imagine what it would be like for people who have to stand before God the Father after they have rejected the Son? Do you hear the wrong theology in that? People do not stand before God the Father when they have rejected the Son. People stand before God the Son when they have rejected God the Son. People who throughout their lives failed to appreciate the sacrifice that Christ made for them have to find themselves standing before him and being judged. And I just can't imagine the horror of that. I can't imagine, I mean, the, the undescribable terror that they must experience at that moment. And these verses are describing that. If you want a good idea of what the terror is like, look at the rest of verse 11. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. What impression does that give you when it says that earth and sky are fleeing from this presence of this throne? I don't take this to be literal language. I think this is figurative language to describe the terror of this moment, that even earth and sky don't sort of shrink away, right? They're not inching away from this. They're what? It says fleeing. Heaven and earth itself want to flee from this throne because it is so terrifying. But there's nowhere, when it says there's no place found for them, what does that mean? There's no place for them to what? There's no place to hide. And the idea is if earth and sky can't hide, then there are no people who are going to be able to hide from this judgment. As verse 12 says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And just for a moment, we kind of read that, but just imagine what this looks like, a throne that is, is great or magnificent enough that all unbelievers throughout all of human history can be spread out before it. And there's nobody that escapes this. Every single unbeliever who has ever lived has been resurrected, brought out, of the place of torment from Hades about to enter, an even worse torment, and they stand before this throne. And when it says the dead, 
when it says the dead in this verse in what way are these people dead this is significant they're spiritually dead these are the spiritually dead people they're unbelievers who remained spiritually dead in their sins they were born physically but they were never born again spiritually and so when they died physically they were still dead spiritually when it says great and small great and small are here that's just a way of saying that there's nobody that escapes this there's nobody who's so great or so famous or so wealthy or so powerful that they escape this judgment and there's nobody who is so small or so insignificant or so poor or so weak that they escape this judgment all unbelievers will be judged and what does it say the people are doing when they're before this throne what does it say that they're doing they're standing there's no mention of them talking it says they're standing and if you picture a courtroom scene when do people stand there's two times that I can think of that's one of them when the judge walks in and then what's the other time people stand during the sentencing and these people are being sentenced it is not a trial it is a sentencing this is not a trial there is no place for excuses there is no discussion there is no talk about what happened during their lifetimes there is no explanation of how they're mistreated and because this happened to them or because this person treated them this way this is why they treated that person that way in response and i don't want to sound at all insensitive to some of the trials that people have experienced but there's no discussion of trials nobody gets to say well if you hadn't let this happen to me the thing that's always who who looks like he deserved not just an explanation but an apology for the way he was being treated and if job himself did not get an apology nobody's getting an apology if job doesn't get an explanation for what happened to him but instead gets 70 something questions launched his way to where he's burying himself under the dust of the earth to get away from this verbal pummeling nobody's getting any explanations and nobody's giving any explanations there are no excuses there's no talk about what happened during their lifetimes that got them to this point and so they shouldn't be here because of that there's no defense what's interesting is first John 2 1 says Jesus is our advocate and that has the idea of a defense attorney but these people rejected the defense attorney they rejected the one defense that they could have now we get to see some books that are present look in verse 12 or the rest of verse 12 it says books were opened another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done the book of life this is commonly called the lamb's book of life and it can it contains the names of all believers throughout human history or everyone who has repented and put their faith in Christ or here's another way to describe this book <laughs> when it says the book of life or the lamb's book of life it contains the names of everyone who will not be at this judgment that's another way to think about this book and it's not that believers escaped judgment because God is perfectly holy and just it's not to say that any of our sins escape being judged or punished it's just that they were judged and punished at the cross it says other books are opened and the unbelievers if you notice that the verse says other books are opened and the unbelievers are judged by 
what was written in these books according to what they had done and so this means that these books contain the records of these people's lives i've always wondered maybe there's a book for each person because how how big would a book have to be just to contain all the record of one person's life and so these books provide the evidence that these people were not good enough to get to heaven now we get to see where the unbelieving dead were before this judgment verse 13 it says the sea gave up the dead who were in it death and hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one of them according to what they had done now this verse is about the location of their physical bodies and souls whenever you read this verse think of it as the description of the location of the unbelievers physical bodies and souls why are death and hades so frequently mentioned together because of the relationship between the two death brought hades right because when people died there needed to be a place for the, or when people experienced death there needed to be a place for them to go and that place is hades the sea and you've probably heard this before in in the ancient world was viewed as this abyss or this bottomless pit that nothing could ever return from which is why what is cast into the sea our sins right that's the beautiful language micah 7 19 he'll have compassion on us he'll tread our iniquities underfoot you'll cast all our sins into the depths of the sea well why is that because the sea in the ancient world was viewed as this bottomless pit that nothing could be brought back from and you should have that imagery the idea is god is going to cast your sin as far as the east is from the west or toward the bottom of an abyss or bottomless pit well, why is it mentioned here i take it to mean that nothing can be brought back from that abyss except the bodies of unbelievers who need to be resurrected to stand before this throne it's probably mentioned here the sea to show that no matter regardless the location of a body god has no problem gathering it for this judgment there's and the idea is it's arguing the higher to the lesser if god can bring a body back from the bottom of the sea he can bring a body back from anywhere everyone can be resurrected from this or for this judgment hades is the location of their souls they're brought up their souls are brought up from this place of torment and to enter this worst torment and then verse 14 then death and hades were thrown into the lake of fire we can see that hades and the lake of fire are not the same because hades is thrown into the lake of fire there's some confusion about this if you've got the king james bible it probably trans or not probably it translates hades as hell and so because of that some people have associated hades and hell but we should see them distinctly because what we think of as hell is the lake of fire but right here we see hades being distinct from the lake of fire because hades itself is thrown into the lake of fire now do i think that death and hades are literally thrown into the lake of fire no i don't i think this is figurative language to show the temporary nature of both or to show the end of both death and hades and so what's really going on here which is which is actually very beautiful i think if you're a believer you can read these verses and really be blessed by them despite how terrifying they are because first you can think about not having to be there because of what Christ has done for you amen and the second thing you can think about is it's really a discussion of the end of sin to discuss the end of 
death and Hades is to discuss the end of sin. And let me just explain it this way. Sin brought what? Death brought, just talked about this a minute ago, Hades, right? Sin brings death. Death brings a place for the dead or Hades. And so to see death and Hades coming to an end or being thrown into the lake of fire is to show the last echoes or vestiges of sin, ending, concluding. Sin comes into the world and brings death. Death comes into the world and brings Hades because people have to have a place to go when they die. With sin ending, death comes to an end. With death ending, Hades comes to an end. And the end of sin, death, and Hades is signified by this destruction or casting into the lake of fire. And then verse 14, it says, this is the second death. This is the lake of fire. And it's called the second death because unbelievers die physically and then they die spiritually and eternity, eternally when they go to hell. But it's misleading. And I don't want you to be misled. When it says second death, don't be misled because these people are not dead. These people are alive. They could be considered more alive than we are. I think there's kind of this idea that this is when we're awake, but when we die, it's like we're sleeping. No, you're more awake when you die. There's a greater awareness. There's a greater alertness. Now we see dimly. These people are not dead. They're spiritually dead, but they are very much physically alive when this occurs. It's called the second death because they died physically and then they die spiritually and eternally when they go to hell. They go on living in the lake of fire. In the previous chapter, you don't have to turn there, but it talks about the Antichrist being cast alive into the lake of fire. And so unbelievers experience a physical birth followed by a physical death and then a spiritual death. Believers are born again. We experience a physical birth and then a spiritual birth followed only by a physical death. Look at verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So if you repent of your sins and you put your faith in Christ, then your name is written in this book, and you don't have to face the great white throne judgment. And I want to conclude by getting you to notice something. Look back halfway through verse 12 with me. Halfway through verse 12, it says, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Halfway through verse 13, it says, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. God is going to take up some of the precious space in his word to repeat himself in two verses back to back he says the exact same thing why would he do that so you don't miss it so you don't miss that if you have not repented and put your faith in christ then you're going to be judged by what what you have done how you have lived how well you have lived which is really to say how poorly you have lived how sinfully you have lived if you've repented and put your faith in Christ, then you've received his what? If you've repented and put your faith in Christ, you've received his what? His righteousness. So let me tell you how this verse would read for you. Beautifully, this should encourage you. This should bless you. Every time you think about this, it should be a great encouragement. 
if you put your faith in Christ, it says believers are judged according to what Christ has done. And that's what I want to read. Believers are judged according to what Christ has done, but unbelievers who do not have Christ's righteousness, they must be judged by what they have done, how they have lived. And this is not teaching salvation by works. Instead, it is teaching the opposite, because all of these people go to hell, which shows that none of them could be good enough. Imagine that. There is not one single unbeliever throughout all of human history who was ever good enough in their own effort to make it to heaven. You can think of the goodest the best, most righteous, moral person you can imagine. Even imagine someone better than that person. And there has never been a person who was righteous or good enough to go to heaven in their own effort. So this is teaching the opposite of salvation by works. This is teaching that nobody is good enough. If you've never repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, do so today so your name can be written in the book of life. If you have any questions about anything I discussed in this sermon, I'll be at front after service and I can consider a privilege to speak with you. Father, I thank you for these verses. I thank you for the revelation in your word. I thank you for what Christ has spared us from. I thank you that our names can be in the book of life, and I don't even know certain for certain uh, why it says that the book of life is present at this judgment, but I like to think that the book of life is present there just to prevent anyone from being there whose name is written in that book. And I thank you for that, Lord, that for believers, we do not need to go before the great white throne judgment. It's not that we haven't been terrible. It's not that we haven't sinned. It's not that we don't deserve wrath or judgment because of what we've done, but it's because of what Christ has done for us in taking that punishment that we deserve, Lord. And I pray that if there's anyone here who hasn't repented and put their faith in Christ, that today would be the day of salvation and they could have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.